spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait peoples today. Welcome to Totally Lit, the podcast celebrating reading, writing and creating literature. I'm your host, Kai Garvey. Thank you for listening. This episode, I'm joined by the extremely talented Isabel Carmody, Australian writer of science fiction, fantasy, children's literature and young adult literature. Isabel is one of Australia's most beloved and awarded fantasy authors. She published her first book around age 24. Isabel began writing Ober Newton at 14 and through a genuine curiosity in humanity's foibles and a stroke of luck, she secured a deal with the first publishing house she ever wrote to. Ober Newton is now a little orange penguin classic and the entire Ober Newton Chronicles with Isabel's infamously voluptuous novels can be found often filling one whole shelf of a commercial bookstore near you. Since then, she has also published numerous other series, standalone novels and short story collections. Isabel achieved her PhD in 2020 and is the winner of many prestigious writing awards. I hope you enjoy our chat. Isabel Carmody, welcome to Totally Lit. Thank you for joining me and my listeners. My pleasure. I'm really excited. I've, I've sort of bumped into you a few times um, over the last couple of years. Um, you helped launch my wonderful friend Inda's picture book, um, mm. which was amazing. And I also attended a course that you ran with the Moreton Bay Libraries about world building, which was exciting yeah. as well. And I um, came away from that um, course. I, Eva Scott was in that course as well. So I made a wonderful friend there and went away with big plans to be a wonderful writer and I've done nothing. Oh, well, I have a picture book out. Um, well, a long way from nothing, Kai. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's something. Um, but I was doing a bit of reading on your website and you've got over 40 books out. So that's a lot more than a picture book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's a very, very long career. So <laughs> It sounds like you're very industrious though. Um, so you started writing when you were young. And you, about 14, is that right? Yeah, I I started writing, I mean, I guess I've always been a big reader, even when I was young. Um, And I started writing, probably, I wrote stories for my brothers and sisters, I wrote stories for myself, I drew little cartoons and stuff like that. But um, I I would say I started writing a book when I was 14, after my dad died, as a kind of way of answering some big philosophical questions for myself, I suppose, although I I wouldn't have put it that way at 14. And you were first published when you were 24, is that, have I got those facts right? If you tell me that, I believe you, because I don't figure these things out myself. So it, it was when, it was in my early 20s, so I guess that must have been around the time. Right. And so you've written 40 more books since then. Do you want to share how you emerged into the publishing industry with that first book? Um, I, because I was 14 and coming from a kind of a pretty um, economically disadvantaged family and background, we grew up in a housing commission area. Um, I, it never occurred to me I was going to be an author. In those days, you didn't meet authors and they were shining beings on another planet. It would never have occurred to me that when I was a child, I could have written to, you know, both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, but n- never would it occur to me that we lived on the same planet. Mm. So um, I didn't think of being an author. I was writing the story for myself, and I liked it, so I kept going back to it. 
and I wrote and wrote and wrote. And uh, I, I went into journalism after university and I wrote all through university and I thought I might be a journalist and because I thought journalism would teach me something about writing and also it would give me um, a way to learn secrets about the world which mm. powerful people knew and which ordinary people didn't. And I wanted that. I wanted some access to the secrets about how things were run and why things happened the way that I did. You know, they seemed terribly unfair. And I thought, well, somewhere they must make sense to somebody. They don't. But that's what I thought back then. Mm. And so I entered journalism. I thought I was going to learn, you know, the big questions about life. And I learned not about truth but about facts. And I learned how facts could be manipulated. So I was writing the whole time through um you know, journalism. And then one day my editor said to me, do you think you're ever going to get any of those things you write published? And it had never occurred to me, not once in all those years. Mm. And in a very short time, I'd sent off a short story and won a short story competition. That was the monster game. And uh, at the same time, I was, I thought I'll finish this book. So I quit my job as a journalist, wrote the book one last time. And, you know, it occurs to me now that what I did was crowdfunding before there was crowdfunding. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a big gamble, leaving your job well, before I, the book is published. Well, I, I, I left it because I, I wanted to really commit to it, mm. to commit to my, you know, writing. And also because I saved up some money and I thought I'll, I'll sell shares in my book to, to be, but I hoped no one would buy, you know, I hope people would buy them, but I didn't ever expect I'd have to pay anything because it didn't occur to me in a million years it would get accepted sort of quickly. Mm. So I, I wrote these, I had a, you know, a friend who was a legal beagle and I said, can you write me the most most legal sounding contract ever where people pay me $20, $30 and get a share and if the book's published within five years, they get that back plus a percentage of what of the advance wow. would be. So I just figured this out, sold it all around. It was an idiosyncratic, funny thing. A lot of my friends, a lot of people bought them. And I saved up all of $3,000 and thought, that's it, I'm quitting. So I quit. And I lived for a year on that $3,000. And I used to ride to the beach every single day. And when everyone was heading for the city to work, I was heading for the beach to relish my freedom. And then I would come home in the afternoon and I would write until I fell asleep, you know, working on it, finishing the book. Mm. And when it was finished, I said, I decided, uh, I, I looked inside the front of every book, you know, in the front you yeah. see those tiny little writings. So there's the address of all the publishers it's ever had. So I just made myself a list and sent it off to the first one on my list and that was Penguin and Penguin accepted it. So that was the beginning. And, uh, so that's how I ended up in publishing. I think probably 12 copies would have sold, except it was also shortlisted for Children's Book of the Year. So mm -hmm. about six months after it came out, it sold incredibly well, like all the shortlisted books. And that, and it, I was working on the sequel, and so um, the, the, the publishers wanted that, and that was really sort of how I, I came in. So I was very lucky. You know, it was mostly luck and good timing by chance. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm really passionate about reaching all those hidden writers that are out there who think, oh, where, where I'm situated at the moment is not, I couldn't be a writer. Um, and yet we all come from very different backgrounds where I, I worked in a bank for 10 years going, oh, it's I can write, but I'll never make a living off it, so I never tried. Um, and I was a single mum by myself going, oh, 
it's silly to try something. But mm. you just have to, if if you've got the talent, I think you should share it. And you're you're saying the same. Like you've got that beautiful story that you've written. You took a gamble on it, and look where you are now, forty books later. Like, um, I think I think those people who are out there listening, who are you know thinking some of those things, uh, I feel like. You're lucky if you're not in a position to think about publication because then you don't have to and you shouldn't because I think at the stage of, you know, at the beginning stages of writing, it should be an allegiance you have to your story. Mm. It should be I didn't write with publication in mind. I wrote with the story in mind and that's all. My What I thought was the best story was what I was writing, not what I thought someone out there might like because how could you possibly know that? Yeah. But if you're thinking mm. of publishing, you're... You're always making that outward journey. I think in the end it's good if you, once you've got your piece of writing, whether you're, you know, a banker or a single mother or, you know, a kid like me or a person doing journalism, once you've got that, that piece of writing, then I think, yes, of course you can try. Anyone could try. And, and why not? You know, because you've got nothing to lose. You've written the thing anyway. But when it comes to, you know, the early stages of writing, if you are nowhere near the publishing industry, thank goodness. <laughs> but really, okay. it's all about marketing and writing is not about marketing. Writing is not about covers or appealing to audiences. Writing is about doing the best writing you possibly can okay. with no voices from anywhere but, you know, your sense of what's good, which means you also need to read. And a lot of people who write don't read, which is utterly baffling to me why a person who doesn't read would think that's a people do and are published but it's astonishing to me that they would even want to write a book and anyone who sits down to write a book for money do something else get a get a normal job because you'll make more money that way you know making a living out of writing almost nobody makes a living out of writing you make a living out of peripheral stuff connected to writing you go out and you lecture to people and sometimes honestly Kai working in a bank is better than <laughs> it is no it's yeah. better because it doesn't take anything away from your writing yeah a, a journalist uh, one of the things that was difficult was to I mean it would have been difficult if I wasn't so hardwired for it those other things you do take energy away from writing mm. so the, the, the I think the job you're looking for as a writer is one that takes the least away from your writing and possibly gives you something back journalism taught me to be concise i thought it would teach me to write better and it did so everything i learned to write over the years made me a better writer and you've been able to sustain a career now what sort of subsidiary activities have you done to keep keep yourself going through the years well, um, in my early career, which is a good couple of decades ago, um, once you had three or four or five books out, you were living on your on your income in the sense that there would be, and you know, your books would sell over the years, and and publishers considered a writer to be a good writer from their point of view if you were a good backlist item which meant if people kept buying your backlist but these days they don't have the backlist available very often so it's a constant negotiated or you know stand and deliver tactics which say if you don't have my if you don't support my backlist which and support to me doesn't mean turn it into a print-on-demand book it means making it available in bookshops and like you know making it there because I mean the other day I walked into a bookshop and I bought four books I didn't go in to buy a single one of them I was looking but I can only buy books that are there which mm -hmm. is why I'm interested in good bookshops and independent bookshops are much are doing very well in this time mm -hmm. you know 
in my early career, there were big chains like Angus and Robertson. They sold a lot of books because they did a lot of hard selling across the country and there were a lot of them. When they died, it was partly because, uh, you know, things like being bought out by American subsidiaries like, uh, um, like Red Group. Red Group bought out um, Angus and Robertson. And uh, so that meant that, you know, a, an American publisher would decide what books might sell and would send to the Angus and Robertson people 900 copies of a book that sold well in middle America and d dropped dead here in Australia. So, again, it was all about marketing from people who didn't understand how people read when they read. Mm. And it, and there were, so you look at all of these things. You look at the phenomenon that was J.K. Rowling's books. Like, for her, she sold really well before it ever turned into movies or anything else. Mm. She just sold really well because she told a good story with some really great elements in it in a time when something comforting might have been needed and that was what was being offered. There's a kind of comfort in her books, even at dark as they are at points. They are also comforting. There's a, they're a school story, which all of us have read. So she sold really well. And then, you know, they had some great marketing tricks, like they released them on a certain day and people lined up for them and all the rest of it. So there was some really clever marketing around that. She had to send it to a lot of publishers and was turned down by a lot of people first. So persistence is important. And she obviously can make a living out of her writing now because she has a big, she has movie franchises and she has all of these things. If you don't have those and, and companies like Angus and Robinson no longer exist, it's much, much harder. Um, mm -hmm. Also, until recently, there was, you could get educational and um, lending book rights, which means you get a little payment out of every book that someone borrows in the library, unless it was an e-book or mm -hmm. an audio book. And I get borrowed like crazy as ebooks and audiobooks, but I don't get any payments for them. So libraries will get rid of hard copies, which is what the electronics people count. Mm. And uh, you, you stop getting. So my public lending rights has dropped down over the years too. Right. But as of this year, they're starting to count electronic rights again. And I am Great. very, unfortunately, only five years back of publishing. So that means that my Over Newton Chronicles, which began before that, mm. uh, won't receive income from the, from and they're the biggest ones that get borrowed for me so what i'm having an argument now with um the audio people is these books need to have a new isbn mm. and the only way to have a new us they don't want to because they've got algorithms that work to direct people to them so they'll make money out of them as the way they are but a writer doesn't and there's no way to say, but I won't get paid out of this because nobody cares. Yeah. So there is. So this is the stand and deliver method. So it's I will not renew any rights to any of these books unless they get a new ISBN number. That's the first thing. Second thing I've done is I also have to recognise they've got a reason for wanting their IS, you know, their algorithms, mm -hmm. because it brings them in money. When the algorithm vanishes and it's new, it takes them a while to build up. So I have to offer them something in return. So I can play hardball, but it's much better if you do both. Yep. So this, so you can say, I will not renew these, but you can also say, but to make it sweeter, when I write um, the book of Matthew, um, which will be from Matthew's point of view, I will always, I always wanted to, people have often said, what about, will you write it from Dragon's point of view? Will part of her, that book be from Dragon's point of view? And the answer is no, but I always would love to have written from her point of view. So I've offered the publishers, you know, the audiobook publishers, one short story about Dragon, a long short story about Dragon, which is a kind of counterpoised for Matthew's story. Um, 
through the series. So each one they bring out, they'll get. A, I will give them the rights and give them a story which they don't have to pay for, which will then freshen up the book and they will then release the book with a new algorithm and a new cover. So in the end, it's it's good for them, but it's possibly also not a bad thing for me either mm -hmm. that they. You know, they have a new something to freshen them as well. Um, so, and at the end of all of that, I'll collect the stories and, um, and I'll offer them separately as well, but sometime in the future. So all these little, you know, various things. I've got lots of, I've got one book with a, uh, with a, a comic book publisher who's going to bring a book out and he's going to bring out his offer to, he wants to bring out six separate copies of comics and unlimited uh, edition comics, which I'm as a comic reader kid very excited by mm. so it won't make me a huge amount of money but it will make me something if i ever finish it yeah and um so there's lots of these kind of little things next year i'll finish dark bane and uh that then alan I, I took from penguin the first two books in that series because they weren't going to bring them out again when they bought out the third one so and they're out of print so i said well there's literally no point in bringing the third one out if you don't bring the first two because the only people who will read it will be people who read the first two. There'll be no potential for new readers in this. So I took the books off them. I sold the rights to Alan and Unwin, and they will reproduce the two books when I give them the third book. So that's partly that I'm working on that. It's been on the back burner, so I always have a couple of things going at the same time. And the one on the back burner at the moment is Dark uh, Bane, mm -hmm. and the one on the front burner is the book that I literally just finished and that's that I'll be editing in the early new year. So you can see there's you've always got a lot of things going. Mm. That's writing wise to, yeah. to to make a living. But I also, you know, I lecture if people ask me to come and speak. I run workshops. I sometimes do mentorships. I did a lot of these in the past yeah. to support my family and me. Mm. I'm now solo, so I don't have to worry about supporting anybody else but my own self. I have my own house now. So, you know, in many ways many of the the, the things that you struggle with when you're younger are not there as things to struggle with now when I'm older. So um, I don't have that same demand. Um, and I still do have a backlist that sells and all the rest of it. So um, so lecturing when I'm, I need it, I, I apply for grants yep. and travel uh, amounts sometimes. Of course, the books themselves bring in money. But I haven't had a book out for a while. The last one came out during COVID. And like many books that came out then, it didn't sell much because there was no way to tell people it was out mm. and people were you know so that that languished to some extent but every time you have a new book out all of your backlist that's available bumps up to the surface too i took the rights to billy thunder and the night gate back um, because i didn't they were telling me that they were going to make them um uh what do you call it print on demand which i didn't want yeah so I now have the rights to those. I haven't put them back out again yet because, again, I'll do that when I have the third book to write as well. So it's managing your rights and keeping control of them. I, I had a conversation with some movie people about the Overnewton series. Um, last week. Yeah, it looks kind of exciting. It's been, in, you know, I've had people look at it before. The people who did Anne of Green Gables held on to the option for a long time, and but they didn't end up doing it. And then there was another group and then another group who looked at it and, uh, you know, got a contract. Then there was a, um, a Las Vegas agent who had a shopping rights for a couple of years. And uh, But this lot looks really – this uh, these people look really, really good. Um, but we'll see. You know, movies are hard to make. Mm -hmm. um, 
the, the gathering's been with um, Nick Verso, who just won, who just beat Bluey out with a book that he wrote for the Academy Awards. So, and it's a passion project of his. He owns the. I gave him the option a long time ago, and he just re-signed. Um, and so the, he's, yeah, he's written that as a series, and uh, it's you know it's a limited series, and he's um, he's a really good writer, and and he's already got that that's written. So you know that, that's there's something. Then there's um. Evermore, um, a woman who's just recently became really well known because she's well, she's very well known in the industry for a young woman called Catherine um, Smythe uh, Mullins, and she uh, wrote um, a, a screenplay for a series based on Evermore. And for a little while, there Amazon was really into that, and oh. she's yeah. But for a little while, and then they did something similar, something sort of gothic and you know dystopian, and they decided that was enough for them then and there. But again, she wrote it already, and it's there. And again, for her, it was a passion project too. So all these things are possibilities. You put quite a lot of time into talking to people about them, and you know meetings and stuff like that. And sometimes you work with treatments and things like that. So, and a lot of energy is spent in these things too. So, you have, I guess you have to be very active. You have to work hard. What I don't do much is self-promote, which I'm, I'm not a very big self-promoter. I, I, I really don't like it very much. I, I mean, why is it that self-promoting always feels and looks like boasting? So It's but a then, strange feeling. I think a lot of writers experience yeah. it. Yeah, because it, it's so not what we're like. Mm -hmm. Most of us, those of us who write because we love writing, are not natural self-promoters. You know, it goes against everything. Some people do it really well. Some people do it in a very slick, professional way. I, I don't like it, but I see that it can work. Um, and then there's a whole new world of self-publishing where people make a lot of money sometimes out of self-publishing, far more than if they went through traditional publishers. So I think it, there are lots of ways to get published now too that didn't exist when I was young. And I'm pretty sure I would have made use of them if I was starting out. So, but being old school, you know, I'm still, you know, with traditional publishers and doing it kind of the traditional way, which sort of coexists as well at this time. I'm still in those early stages where I've, I've had my picture book contract and like, cause you just want that first email saying yes. And I've had a few short stories win prizes. Mm. And so I'm still at those very early stages. <laughs> and I don't know if as you, progress whether you get a bit blasé about it or whether it still feels the same when you get receive those affirmations I guess that somebody wants to sell your book or, or share your story it's exactly the same because if you think about it people assume if you've written 40 something books you must know how to do it but every book is its own journey and its own challenge every book is different or you're writing the same book over and over again and who wants that so every book is difficult and I, I had no idea if they would accept this one when I sent it off. I know there's a, I know I'll get a read, having been around a long time. I know they'll really seriously consider it because, um, you know, they, they want to, they, they've got a name they can sell. It's easier to promote me. So they know those things. But at the same time, there's lots of books out there and they want something that they think is going to sell really well. And if I've written a lousy book, that won't sell well. And I don't want to publish a lousy book. So, Having written it, I'm always anxious a little bit about the, you know, the response I'm going to get. And, uh, you know, her, hers was a really good response. And right. so we had one editorial meeting and now she'll give me her notes after this. So. And now that you're 
in a different stage of your writing career and in your personal life, are you feeling more creative freedom when you write or is it still the same process? It's the same process. I mean, you will always fight the world for time and space to write because even your best friend who knows you're a writer thinks you can do it when they're not around. So when they're around, they don't realise everyone else feels exactly the same way. So you always have to elbow the people of the world in the face, even if you love them, to get them to go away and write. So it's always a fight to make space to write and it has to be on the front line. You have to you know, really make, make your writing the first thing and the most important thing. And, you know... You know, I adore my daughter, I, my partner It was really important to me. So these people have a demand on your time and you want to spend time with them. On my own now, I have a lot more time, which I love. I love that freedom of time. I don't think I write anymore. Um, I think I write the same, but I have the freedom to choose. When, uh, there's a lot of peace around my writing now, a lot of peace in my life. Um, I can choose to do or be pretty much anywhere. And so all those things are really lovely. But I'm only just reaching that shore, you know. So in a year, I might know better <laughs> what it feels like. Um, but for, for, it's not good for everybody, you know, this peace and this quiet and this space and nothing demanding anything of you. It's only because I've been doing it for a really long time that I can still work. A lot of people faced with a whole amount of time don't do anything. because That's they. True. They're used to fighting against something to get time to write. So, you know, be careful what you wish for might be the best answer to that. <laughs> I do sometimes wonder if I've had a few challenges in my life. My, my two sons have special needs and I was a single mum for a while. Um, things are quite good at the moment. But mm. I'm like, oh, would I have risen to the challenge if I hadn't had the challenge? Would I have pushed myself to be I'm something sure you different but I'm wondering you know you think of oh that I guess it's that sliding doors thing where it's like oh if I was just a housewife with a, a happy life would I have tried to do or, or achieve any of the other things and um, I probably shouldn't say just a housewife because there's some people that are very happy and flourish in that role um, mm. but for me um, when I was facing challenges, I was like, I, I want to make something of this life. Um, and that's why I started writing. Um, mm -hmm. And do you feel that way? Or how do you feel I, about your, what drives you to write? I think there is a drive to, to write um, or to create probably would be the best way to put it. There's a drive to create, which I think is in a lot of people as children. And I think they life often produces a path which takes them away from it. Like a lot of people write when they're young. Writing when you're young is not unusual at all. Writing and creating, painting, making music, dancing, all those arts are there when we're young and most kids flourish doing them. And then you, you, you know, you get to school and it, and it, and a lot of the school stuff is, especially now, crushing the life out of any creativity because all it's doing is producing, you know, cogs for jobs. And so, and I think a lot of people, you know, want to be safe. There's a, this is a time when, even though the world is kind of safe for many of us, um, we feel, you know, that, that, that life isn't safe and therefore we have to be protective and we have to do real jobs and do, which always seem to be something, you know, protecting capitalism and the status quo and stuff like that. So once you get caught up in that, like, it's hard. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, you worked in a bank 
which some people might say is a kind of machine. Many working industries are machines, but you were not a machine. You didn't become a cog because a bit of you still had that creative drive. Mm. So I'd say in some of us that creative drive is quite strong and no matter what we do, it will continue and find an outlet in one way or another. And so I think I had that drive. I think you have that drive. And I think a lot of people out there, whether they're housewives or presidents, have that drive. Mm. And actually, it'll come out somehow um, if the opportunity or they make the opportunity arises. So, And for those who don't feel creative, I, I always feel like I always want everybody to, to try to get their way back to it because I feel like what kind of life do we have if there's no creativity in it? I, I actually feel for them and yet they you know they don't read they don't some people you know they don't look at movies they don't they don't they don't consume any kind of creativity Mm. and they don't take part in it and i just feel humanity diverges into whatever it is they are the hedge fund managers of the world and the donald trumps of the world they go in one direction and then we go in another direction which is where we can have some art and enjoy it and love it. People who sell art as an investment and never look at it, that's the, that's that path. Yep. But I think for most of us, it's not like that. I think that's actually a narrow path mm. and the rest mm-hmm. of us are mostly on the other one or yearning for it one way or another. Well, I think it just comes, explodes out of you the more you try to repress it as well. Um, I yeah. found I've been a much more satisfied person now I've, I'm creating um, and yeah. being more... I I guess, true to myself. Um, Now, I want to ask you, because you are so prolific, where do you get all your ideas from? Everywhere, life, you know. But I think in the end, if you look at everybody, every writer's body of work, you always come back to, if they're real writers, they're asking one or two questions over and over and over again. Mm. And you, you look at the themes in a piece of writing when you study them as students, but I think those themes arise from the questions the writer is asking themselves. And my question is, why do people do the things that they do? Why are, why are we capable of such extremes of behaviour, beauty and creativity and kindness and self-sacrifice at one end and complete monstrosity, you know, awfulness, hideousness, cruelties at the other end? Mm. How is it that we encompass these things as humans and what makes us one or the other, you know? And is it one or the other? So these questions have always been, you know, from 14, 13, 12, those questions are things I always wondered about. And they're such huge questions that you never come to the end of them. And so all of my books, to some extent, ask, what are we as human beings? Where are we going? What is possible for us? Is it like the Over Newton Chronicles asks, is it possible for us to be better as a human race? Or are we just hardwired to come to the same end? Or, or can we be better? I wanted to find out if I could believe that, if I could find a way to write a story where humans were better. And I did. I felt I did. And what was required, I realised, of us in the writing of that is we have to evolve beyond whatever it is we think human beings are that are so wonderful. We have to let go of that and keep on growing into something better, you know. And, you know, so so that's that was my understanding. I asked a question. I came up with some thoughts and answers from it. So the ideas that come are drawn to the questions that I ask, I think. How are you finding the current world environment? Is that the world seems, I know it's always in a state of crisis, but are you finding that you're being stimulated to ask further questions that you asked when you were 14? 
I would say evolutions of those questions. For yeah. instance, when I was a kid, there wasn't much about, there were no computers, there were, you know, the technology that we had was much more limited than we have now. It didn't permeate our life. I think we co-evolve with our computers, like we spend half our time looking at our phones mm. now. Mm. We certainly didn't do that when we were young. So the way we've moved has been towards some kind of integration or, and, and, and opposition and connection to machines. So one of the questions I ask now is if we continue to evolve with machines and we start to adapt ourselves and change ourselves with machines, where does humanity end? And if, is that a good thing maybe? And what does it mean to be partly human and partly whatever it is that's machine? So that question is, a, a continuation of what are we and what can we be to what does it, you know, what is a machine? Is a machine an entity that lives? At what point does it become alive and is alive only human? You know, is there a different kind of aliveness than, and maybe a better one? You know, so some, that's a question that I'm asking now. So I'd say they're all just extrapolations of the original questions to mm. some extent. And, uh, but world stuff does make a difference too. For instance, um, you know, the, the book that I've just finished is set in the future of Canberra and it sort of looks at how the price we prepare to pay to be safe, um, mm. how much control, how many civil liberties we give up, uh, what would you give up in order to be safe? And it seems to me a very great deal. Humans are very fearful and would give up a lot to be safe. And so that, that story explores that. Um, the idea that, you know, I've, I started out by writing a dystopia and the thought about dystopias I read one day startlingly and strikingly that, of course, every dystopia we write is existing somewhere in the world for poor people who don't have enough to eat. You know, mm. people working in, you know, cobalt mines in, in um, Africa or something, you know, they live in a dystopia right now. And, so, yeah. and we can't think beyond that. We can only think our notion of dystopia exists in the world and we call it dystopia and imagine it's the future, but it exists. We just don't have to look at it. So I thought, what if we do, which we do, live in a dystopia for some people, And but what if someone lives in one and doesn't know it, which is us, and then realises it? How, how, how would that realisation come? How would that change their behaviour? Would it be still, oh, well, good, at least I'm safe? Or where, where would it go? And because I think young people are more likely to be brave more likely to adapt, more able to change. The main characters, are, as many in many of my books, is an adolescent, and uh, you know he he begins one way and has and and is changed by what he learns about the world. So you know, so that's you know a direct reflection of stuff that's happening in the world. But still, the question ultimately is why are, why do we do the things we do? Why does he do what he does? Why do the people in power do what they do? Same questions as when I was writing Over Newton. And because we're so... Human nature, really. Yeah, and because we're so complex and our world is so complex, those questions, you can find millions of different ways to ask those questions that are equally interesting. So I guess those are... And if you look at your work, because you've only written a few short stories and one yet that we, you know, that you've mentioned, you may have written a hundred others, you'll begin to see as you work what are your questions. And the more you know what they are, the more you can pursue them and more clear-mindedly you can figure out, is this something I'm interested in? And then that, that goes back to writing stories that are true to your own questions and not to what you think will sell out there in the market. The way to originality is not out there. It's in here, inside you. 
So that's a lot of deep thought for a 14-year-old, oh, Isabel. <laughs> I think all 14-year-olds think deeply like that. I think what do, who don't think deeply like that are people our age. You know, your age yeah. up to my age, I think we don't have time to think, let alone think deeply. And, and, and Well, I think it's difficult to sleep at night as well yeah. if you really think about reality. Yeah. Even we're trying to pretend it is dystopia in the future mm -hmm. because it's actually very difficult to think about these big real issues yeah. and function. Yeah, and, and in a way that is one of the virtues of creativity, that you can ask these questions in a nourishing, flourishing kind of way. That you Because I think we need to ask them as humans. We can't put them aside and not think about them. And I think we lay awake at night and wonder how to pay the bills. We, we lay awake at night and wonder what's going to happen to our kids in the world. I think we lay awake and worry all right, but we think very specifically about our own questions, whereas a kid is still growing in the world you've invented, we've invented, and so they don't have their own world yet to worry about. So instead, they are able and free to think about those philosophical questions. They won't feel free, they feel powerless, but that's exactly why they can think about those questions. And, of course, they think we have power and grow up and discover we don't. So, don't have any yeah, exactly. So, so it's that, that privilege that they can think about those things, and it shapes us as humans. The things that we have around them, that happen to them, that happen to us, which they see, shape them and their questions. Is that potentially how you felt as a young person writing? Yeah, absolutely. That I, yeah. those questions were very important to me. You know, I, I, I learned in school about you know the Manhattan Project. And it's been a lifelong preoccupation. I've got a book with me right now called Chernobyl that I'm reading. I went I went to Japan last month and I went to Hiroshima. And um, so, you know, these sorts of things that shape you. At 14, I worried that somebody was somewhere deciding it would be a good idea to drop an atomic bomb on me. And I, like the people in those, you know, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, wouldn't know about it. I wouldn't know. And someone would think that was a good idea for reasons that, whatever the, their reasons. So I felt quite vulnerable. And I felt the world was a dark and dangerous place. You know, my dad had been killed by a drunk driver. So I felt anything could happen. All the bad things could happen. But I still had hope, you know. I dreamed of things that were good. I dreamed of belonging somewhere. And, and so I wrote those two things, the questions and, and the things I longed for. The wishful thinking was all kind of bound up in Ober Newton too. Love and friendship and a place to belong, they're all in there too. And as an adult, you do quite a bit of activism and you're passionate about important issues. Do you feel that your writing career has enabled you and given you a bit of power to be able to do that? When I did the period of life in which I was very, very out there and I put everything, my PhD, my writing aside, and I was very much an activist in that time, you have to give up, there's no other life you know, that you it, it consumes you and you think of nothing else too. At that point, I did not want to use my writing as a platform. I didn't want to be a writer. At that, I didn't, because I felt like it would look awfully like self-publication or promotion. I felt it, it's a very, very fine line you walk at that point. So I just right. felt like, no, I just don't want to do it. So when I stood with my sign, I never said to anyone that I was a writer. I never promoted myself in any way when I was out there. However, I did post online 
a picture every day and talk about what had happened. So people who did know I was a writer would read it, but people who didn't know I was a writer would just read the article and would talk to me in the street. So I was really careful to keep the two lives apart. They do merge. Like people who knew I was a writer were very conscious. I got a lot of publicity for doing it, a lot of value for doing it, but it wasn't ever my... I was very careful to kind of try to keep it to one side because of, that was the problem. However, of course, it... Looking at it now, it certainly gave me a platform. In Once I got to the later stage when I put it together an installation and I ran it here last year in, or earlier in the year here in Canberra, I did make very much use of people to bring it in to, to talk about what it meant to protest and the value and the need for the ability to protest in our community. And again, it goes back to that power question. If you don't have power, how do you make them listen? Well, this is one of the ways. And so that installation for me was a very important way of, you know, again, asking philosophical questions and, and, and provoking people to ask them too. So, yeah, so in a way, I don't see them as connected, but it did give me an unintended platform. Yeah, but I didn't... I suppose if I wanted to raise money for something, I would probably ruthlessly use my... Um, but only if there was, I just am very, I don't want to be seen as doing it as a way of promoting myself as a writer. So that's really, I'd, I would, that's a question I would always ask myself with any activism. And, and I'm doing a lot less now because it does consume you and you don't do anything else for that time. I think it was what I did, I felt very, very passionately about. But then other causes start drawing you and you can see how easily your life could go there. And I have other things, I have other work too that, that I think is important as well. So I, I, so I did withdraw from it after, you know, after that arc of time. So at that time, were you prepared to let go of your writing career? I didn't. To be an activist? I did but I was working every day, but I was also putting PhD right. together. So I would go yeah. home at night and I would work on it, but I was not working with, it wasn't on the front line. And I always talk in this way about the front line and the back line. The front line is the work that is at the fore of my imagination. It's the thing that I'm doing. And during that year, my PhD and my writing went to the back line. So they were there and they were still happening, but nowhere near as passionately. All my attention was focused on that, that, that at the time and what was left over went elsewhere. So there's no way I'd ever give up writing, but that it wasn't on the front line anymore. And this, this last year I've tried quite hard to say no to lots of things, to push them away so that I see this year unfolding next year with very little in it except writing. And that's, I'm so happy about that. Um, because I have some stuff I really want to focus on. And, and, and I think of these frontline things, first finishing comes the night, which hopefully in the first couple of months of the year, um, finishing reading Theatre of Death, which was my PhD novel, and sending that to off, and then, and then finishing Dark Bane. Um, mm -hmm. That's really important. And other little smaller writing projects I've got around. I want a year in which I finish a lot of big things. So And hurry up to answer your early question. Ah, uh, yes. Will Isabel Carmody hurry up? I'd love to hear more about that and share it with our listeners. Yeah, well, it's a website that was started by somebody to where people went to complain about how long it took me to finish books in the series, perfectly reasonably because there were like 12 years between some series books. And I take it as a compliment, but people got pretty angry at different times and still do that I haven't finished things or that I haven't got to them. And someone wrote me a really savage letter recently saying, 
how, you know, you reckon you've got your daughter to look after. She must be 24 now. You can't have to look after her anymore. And you must be like 65. You must have, you must, you just, why are you doing this? Why don't you take a course and learn to finish your books? So angry. I was like amazed that this person wrote this terribly privileged but also really furious letter. And I wrote back. Listeners, my mouth was wide open right there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so shocked by thought, that. Wow. So I thought about it for a while and I wrote back, you know, wow, you, you really, how to respond to this very angry message. I said, look, I am 65, but I have, you know, parents who are older, mother who's older. I have a mentally ill brother that I take care of. I have, my daughter is 24, but she's only just out there in the world. I have... You're a mum for life, I The think. thing is, life doesn't get less complicated and easier. In some ways it does. In other ways, you just have more responsibilities and things to take care of. And I said, so, no, I am not free. And also, I do still have to make a living. So I do have to make my payments on this and I have to do this. So I still have to earn a living. So I have to stop and do those things. And that's why I do those mentorships that you're sneering at. And, you know, it's, and I said in the end, you know, I, I am a whole person. And I just, I, I was gobsmacked. I wanted to actually, the vicious bit of me wanted to take the letter, post it in the public space and respond to it there. I didn't, but I was tempted, pretty tempted. <laughs> so with Isabel Carmody, her, will hurry up that is a patreon program that people can follow your work oh yeah on, yeah so um, when I started, and we can engage with you yeah sorry through I, that program i didn't go fully explain that so that's where the the website came from and then someone suggested to me at some period when things were very very tight um someone suggested uh, doing patreon and i looked at it and thought oh no my god it's too much like begging and i can't my pride won't allow it so i wouldn't and then a really keen fan who ran the head of ran my fan club for years said to me, really pitched to me that I should do it, and she said, you know, she she just made me think I could do it, and so I, I did it. I set it all up, and then it took me another six months to launch it, and I don't really publicise it. All I do is when I make a new post, I make it you know public out there in the world, and every now and again I mention it somehow somewhere. But again, it's that sort of cringing line where I, I just, as a person from traditional publishing, where you didn't make a fuss, it's really hard for me to do it. That site over the over COVID, that just saved me. Paid my rent sometimes. It was just, and it's always been fantastic. And we, you know, a lot of people give away lots of things and, and all the rest of it. And I tried in the beginning to think how to, what should I give away? And what, in the end, it just wasn't me. What was me was running a monthly workshop, which, you know, if people are joining the, the thing, it costs them about $17 a month, I think. And if you're going to do a workshop, well, I think that's fair enough, $17 for a workshop. So for those people who come to the workshop, I think it's there's some value. Um, the people who want books on the, on the, um, Patreon site, you know, will always get uh, books that at my cost, whatever I can buy them for the publisher, I just pass it on to them. Um, there's artwork that I draw. Sometimes I make that available or I give it away. If I have meetups, I invite anyone in that town or city to come to it. Of course, a lot of those things in COVID sort of went sideways because people didn't want to come out. And, mm -hmm. uh, and when a new book comes out, um, the, the people in the website um, they get a cop an advanced copy, or I give away advanced copies, and then there's very cheap later on copies, kind of as they come out as well. 
So, and I, of course, if there's book launches or anything, I invite these people first. And uh, when I do my mentorship, in my mountain mentorships, they get first preference and they come at a discount. So, yeah, so, and mentorships are cheaper for them and all the rest of it. And I do posts a couple of months usually about what I'm doing. And I find I post a lot less in the public arena now because I spend my, I've only got so much energy and now I spend yeah. it on the Patreon site. So I used to write posts in public. I don't really do that much anymore. I do, you know, just the ones on my Patreon site. And of course, I have long conversations with people and, you know, I enjoy the company. And if someone asks me something um, and I can do it and they're on my Patreon site as a supporter, of course, I'll, I'll go out of my way if I possibly can. So... And in the new year, will you be running any of your workshops? Yes, I'm, I'm probably going to run one um, in early June or March, sometime around that year up in the mountains. People just uh, only have to pay to get there. Um, I don't mentor anybody on those um, days. I just I go up there and I write. We write together. It's a writing community. You're really just paying for your accommodation, um, which is quite cheap. Um, it's like 50 or $60 a a night or something like that. I mean, it's not cheap, cheap, but it's cut it past the heat and there's only us there in the lodge. And at night we sit around the fire and we talk and we and you bring your own food up, although I usually offered I cook the first night's meal and we eat together at the tables and people, you know, so we bring food up and, and whatnot. And um, they're great fun, you know, people keep coming back. So time, time to write. Yeah. Um, so it's not like a series of workshops, no workshop. like some retreats no. are. However, it's just time to run. Yeah. However, often there's somebody up there. Like last time, Anne Spud Villas, who's an illustrator, came up, and she showed them and talked to them about heaps of things. I was so happy that she was up there because they were. It was re it was really exciting to have her. She talked about illustration and her career, and and she was lovely. She painted people, and she, you know, she drew, and she was really a lovely, valuable. And I have friends who are writers visit and come up there too. So whoever's up oh, there amazing. shares their stories and all the rest of it. Yeah, so they are, they're really – I think they're really good. Um, I only ask people to come or I only agree – if people want to come, they have to have a piece of something they're working on, like, you know, or a very good plan to start something. So they need to have a plan of what they're going to do up there because otherwise they'll just feel it's, they've wasted their time. So they need to have a feeling – that they that there's some use to be got out of it for them, you know, because it's not a time. People in the day work. Everyone goes somewhere and works all day long. So, and every now and again, you see people have conversations. And sometimes I run a mentorship with someone up there who's asked for it, but that's additional and separate. And in that case, they would send me a piece of work. I would a sample and ask me. I would then agree, and then I I, I outline for them what that mini mentorship up in the mountain is will be for them. And they'll still spend a lot of their time writing. So that's what that's for. And I was a member of your Patreon group and I fell off. That's probably the force of the – that's probably – a Patreon had a kind of a weird glitch at some point where they changed something connected with PayPal and uh, a lot of people who were, who were paying through PayPal got kicked off um, but have rejoined. So, or, or did, you know, I, I, left. I didn't go after them if they didn't join because I thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity if they're ready to go away. And people go on and come off sometimes if they, they're paying and they're enjoying it, but then they're going away and or they feel they can't afford it. You know, they just yep. they go off and go on as they choose. So, 
and at the time I think we were working through chapters of a, a writing book. Do you recall what that book was? Um, I can't remember. Ha, um, oh, the writing book. I think it was maybe it was Kate Grenville's, I think, writing book we were working with that time. And will you be doing something like that again this in the future? coming year we're gonna we're gonna try to put together for, um a graphic novel we're gonna work on graphic novel oh, this year sounds cool. i did a somebody ran a course for just me and one other writer remember me telling you about the six comics um, yeah. so the guy got someone to come and give us a kind of like an intensive little mentorship um and there's a lot of information there that was really valuable so i want to spin that into over the next year i want to work on a graphic novel and uh, that graphic novel is one of the projects. It's not the frontline project, but it's one of them. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd work on that through the mentorship, through the um, uh, Patreon people as well. So those who want to draw um, can do both. Those who want to draw and write can do both. Those who want to just write can do it Can do it as well. So it'll be like, oh, yeah, so that's what we're kind of going to be working on. But the first sessions, the first couple of sessions in the new year will be just traditional writing ones. Yep. Um, just to get us kind of kick-started and to talk about what we might, what our graphic novels might be. And once we've got the projects, move forward from there. So what we're doing at Fantastic. the moment is we're looking at how to build, world build, and it's, we've been yep. doing world building up at the moment, you know, um, working out different approaches. Everyone's got different stories about building the world and whatnot. Amazing. So I'll share your Patreon link with everybody. So yeah, anybody great. that's excited uh to look into graphic novels yeah. can um come along for the ride so now i've got a few fun questions to ask you um and then we can wrap up okay. so what was your favorite book growing up isabel um well i loved the uh, i loved the um narnia books the lion the witch and the wardrobe mm -hmm. the idea of going into an alternate world where you could talk to animals which was the thing i wanted most um and a world where you know honor mattered and all of those things. So for me, that was a really important book. I used to read, um, I loved Pippi Longstocking. I mean, that was a younger mm -hmm. book, but I, I liked the adventurousness of that. And it strikes me that many of the books I was attracted to, Anne of Green Gables, um, um, the, the, the Tom's Midnight Garden, were about kids who were orphaned or alone. And uh, mm. um, Margaret Mahi said, when you write children's books, you have to get rid of the adults. So I think I was yes. very, because my dad wasn't there and I, I had a very strained relationship with my mother. So there was this feeling that I needed to find a way to get away from that and into something where I could be alone. So I think straining at the bonds of adulthood, books like that. Um, so And, um, of course, the um, the Lion, the Witch, and the, not that, um, what's it called? Um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Yes. Yeah, that series. And so... Um, Anne McCaffrey's books, um, talking to dragons, you know, speaking. Of, yeah. And um, so these are the books. I can't. I was very. I, lo I read a lot of science fiction as well as a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Perhaps even more because I think science fiction was stronger back then than now. And mm -hmm. science fiction asks all those big questions. So yeah. So if you could be any book character, who would it be? Book character. Oh. Hmm. Any book character. Well, I would want one with power. I would want to. Be, I would want one who would maybe fly or have telepathy or something like that. You know, I can't think of a book, but the books that I read something magical, not magical. No, I think I would like powerful. Some kind of it's almost science fiction power. Uh, I would want something like that. Like telepathy isn't magic. I would like telepathy. Mm. Yeah, something like that. 
What are you reading right now? I've just finished just finished um, a book that I adore called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Have you read it? No. At about 117, it's like someone kicked you in the chest. Wow, I'm think, writing it What? Down. That is just an astonishing book. I can't tell you anything about it, but I can only tell you that. And everyone should go out immediately and get that book and read it because it's it's an astonishing book. Okay, it's written down. Yeah. It's going in my to-be-read pile. Okay, if you could invite five literary people to dinner, who would they be? Who would they be? Ursula Le Guin, though she'd be very stroppy and she is, in fact, not alive. Um, Tolkien. They can be dead, that's fine. Tolkien, I would have him. Um, I would have Huraki Murakami, Haruki Murakami, who wrote Kafka on the Shore. I love that book. Um, that's three. Anne McCaffrey and Sherry Tepper. Oh, I love Sherry Tepper. Yeah, me too. I was blessed um, during my university degree to have to read um, some of her books mm. and, yeah. Um, I wish I could create like that. Oh, who doesn't? Yes. The books are amazing, <laughs> were amazing. If you were at Hogwarts, what house would you be in? Ravensclaw. They're blue. I like Ravenclaw. Now this is a bit more writing-based. Uh, what, what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the beginning of your writing journey? Don't worry, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to escape all of this horrible world you grew up in and you're going to end up somewhere where you can live wherever you like and do what you like. That's what I'd say. Except maybe it's better not to know these things. Maybe, maybe it's better to work your way to this. Yeah, it's interesting to wonder what path you'd be on if you could go back and visit yourself. And say, well, I used to tell it's myself, gonna be okay. I used to tell myself that. I used to say, you don't belong here. This isn't your life. These people, you don't have to be with these people forever. And so I told myself, I guess I'd just be reiterating what I told myself without knowing it and came to, to find. I guess if you want it hard enough and it's reasonable, you should be able to get it. I think um, a lot of us feel that way when we're young, that we're in, in the wrong place or we're the yeah. wrong person for the place that we're Absolutely. in. Um, I, when I was young, I read um, Kylie Tennant's Ride on Stranger. I don't know if you've yeah. ever read that. Yeah. Um, and I mainly read it because my mum has always said I was named after her. Oh. So I was like, I'm going to read her work. But I was very um, touched by that book and the journey that her character takes through it um, because she was, yeah, a character that was in the wrong place for her and she kept finding herself in the wrong place. And the irony of it at the end was, yeah, she finds that calm, peaceful place for her, which is not where you would have expected her to be in the end. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, it's always touched me that book. Yeah, um, the great story arc, it, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I would have. And thought, it sounds like you're you're in that calm place, which is great. Yeah, well, I would never have imagined that there would be so much travel in my life, that there would be a daughter and a partner in my life. I didn't imagine any of the house that I would own. Mm. None of those things seemed to me what I would come to on a writer's life. And so, but I found all those things, and on the other side of it, peace also. A kind of peace. It's nothing static, though. Until you're dead, life is changed. Yes. Mm. So true. I, I find myself astonished, like, just chatting here with you today. I'd never have dreamt of being able to do something like that. And I get to chat to some great authors with this podcast. And 
it's just fascinating to listen and chat mm. and um, learn each time I have a conversation with someone. But I think the reason um, you ask good questions is because you are a writer. So you know the kind of questions. You ask the questions a writer would want to know. Yeah, well, yeah, main, I don't really write a script, although I've got a sort of dot yeah. points in front but of me. But I mean me you don't have to just because to, you ask. No, I just respond mm. um, to you take me where we go usually. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. I'm a bit addicted to it, though, <laughs> in terms of um, creatively it, it doesn't, pay the bills being a podcaster nope. Does nothing <laughs> um, pays the bills except some horrible job yes yes so but i i do find myself wanting to continue and reach out to other authors and continue these conversations and just share them i like listening to with... them too thank you that's good thank you <laughs> so um which is your next release that your fans can look out for comes the night it's called Comes the night, and who will that be published through? Alan and Unwin. Great, and and is that within the first half of the year, or when? I would say it, it, it'll certainly be the second half of the year. Uh, they have a very long. Publishers have a much longer lead-in time now, so I'm hoping yes. it will be this coming year. But it may well even slip into the following year. So I'm really hoping it's this year, later this year. And will you change your website to Isabella? Isabel Carmody has hurried. No, I think until I've done the la the last book in the day, in the Legend Song series, and mm. the last book in um and, and the last book in Billy Thunder and the Nightgate, I think I then still have to be told to hurry up. But after that, <laughs> <laughs> um, it must be a wonderful feeling. I know that um, email was a bit narky, but that your fans crave your work that, that they, they stick more. around for this long yeah in many ways i yeah. just think well let's hope but it's also nerve-wracking too because you've got to live up to that you know i remember when i was writing the red queen i was totally freaked out because i thought you know how how can i satisfy all these people who write and say what they want to have happen even and my editor yeah, finally okay. said to me you only wrote all the other books for yourself forget about everybody and write for yourself so i did mm -hmm. okay <laughs> i think that's good um advice for all writers out yeah. there is to write for yourself. Thank you so much, Isabel, for today. Um, you've been very generous with your time. It was my total pleasure, Kai. Totally Lit is an independent podcast. You can help support us to continue to chat with wonderful Australian creatives by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our socials with your friends. You can also make a contribution at www.buymeacoffee.com backslash totallylit. This will also help with equipment and podcasting platform fees. I love to interact with our listeners, so feel free to say hello either by mail or social media, totallylitpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Insta, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I've also created a group on Facebook called Totally Lit Writing Community. It's a space to continue the conversation and share your writing successes, events, launches, and latest projects. Jump into the group and say hello. Thank you for listening to Totally Lit and don't forget to go out into the world to read, write, create, ignite. <laughs>